If you've been tracking with Matthew's argument through his gospel thus far, you'll remember that the first few chapters, the prologue, he was concerned with giving us many proofs. The initial claim that Matthew makes when he begins his gospel is that this man, Jesus, is in fact the long-awaited-for Messiah of Israel who would bring about the hopes of the nation and a blessing to the Gentiles. And thereafter, one passage at a time, Matthew issues proofs to us to demonstrate that he was right in asserting Jesus as the Christ. Those proofs culminated with an emphatic public declaration from God himself. At the point of Jesus' baptism, God audibly speaks and declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Thereafter, Jesus is tested in the wilderness. This was our text last week, and we saw that Satan met with Jesus not so much to try and prompt him into a particular sin as he was concerned to probe his heart. What kind of son of God is this? And we found that Jesus is a son of God that would obey, trust, and worship his father completely. And it's critically important to remind ourselves that that episode of Jesus' testing in the wilderness comes at the very beginning of his public ministry. It's not halfway through, it's not at the end of his ministry, but the episode that just begins Jesus' ministry is the validation of this Son of God. We now know without any shadow of a doubt that this Son of God, this Christ, this King can be followed. We can trust him. There need be no doubts in our minds as to whether he is followable. Whatever difficult teachings he will bring, we can pledge our allegiance to him and proclaim ourselves to be one of his disciples. So you see Matthew shifts from that prologue where he is proving to us that Jesus is the Son of God to now seeking a response from us. And the same is true in our text today. Jesus begins his ministry in perhaps a somewhat understated manner. He moves from one area to another, and then he preaches a sermon that was the same sermon John the Baptist preached, namely that of repentance because the kingdom of heaven is near. He doesn't begin with a miracle. He doesn't begin with a lengthy sermon or a teaching discourse Nothing outrageous, nothing fantastic. Jesus moves from one area to another and calls people to repent. It strikes us perhaps as somewhat understated the manner in which Jesus begins his ministry. And yet, it's critically important to understand that here, in these few verses, we are shown a series of themes that will become prevalent critically important throughout the rest of Jesus' earthly life by which we are to understand more fully the nature of his ministry and of the gospel. In this short text, as is so often the case, at the beginning of the biblical narrative, 
we find a number of themes being shown to us in order to better understand what will come after. Themes that will be fully fleshed out in the remainder of Jesus' ministry. Why would Matthew be concerned to give us these themes up front? Why would he be concerned early on in Jesus' ministry to indicate to us, to signal to us what will be to come? I think at least in part. It's because Matthew does not intend any surprises in this narrative. He's not in the business of building a suspense-filled story. He doesn't intend any surprises. He wants to tell us from the very beginning, this is the nature of this man and of his ministry, and you can follow him. In the very next text, as we'll look next week, Jesus starts to summon people. Follow me, he says to these men. This will start to be a drumbeat in Jesus' ministry, calling for disciples. And so at the very beginning, Matthew shows us these themes in order that we would not be surprised. We would not be shocked, but we would know exactly what we're signing up for. We would understand who this man is, what is the nature of his ministry, and we may boldly proclaim ourselves to be his disciples. So this morning, I just want to walk through what these themes are. There are at least three of them, and consider each one in turn, noting how it explains Jesus more fully, and what ought to be our response in light of them. The first theme to which Matthew introduces us is that of betrayal. Jesus' ministry will be one wherein he is betrayed. We read in verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, or that word could equally be translated when Jesus heard that John had been handed over, or even an acceptable translation that John had been betrayed. When Jesus heard of this happening to John, he withdrew. He withdrew from the Jordan area into Galilee, settling in this small village called Capernaum. So what we see is a twofold movement at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. A twofold movement, first of withdrawing and then of going. He withdraws from the Jordan area and then he goes to Capernaum. And we might be tempted to gloss over this as if it is an insignificant detail. It's in fact highly significant. Why did Jesus first of all withdraw and then go to this region? The answer in a succinct summary form is because Jesus understood himself to be in the likeness of John. The summary answer is the reason Jesus does this is because he understood himself in the likeness of John. You might turn back just briefly to chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel in verse 11. We're reminded that when John came, he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, that term there of coming after, is a unique term. 
It is not a term that simply specifies Jesus would come after me in time. That's how we often think of the relationship between John the Baptist and Christ. John came first. Jesus came next. In fact, the word that John chooses there intimates discipleship. The one that comes after me in a slightly provocative manner, John is perhaps hinting here that his very first disciple is Jesus Christ. And he indicates to us through this speech that he was but a forerunner to Jesus. Not simply in time did he precede Jesus, but in ministry, in theology. And we see that by virtue of the fact that Jesus shows up preaching exactly the same sermon that John preached. So now with that being stated, consider the significance of John's arrest. Consider the significance of John being handed over. It is a signal to us, to all who would care to observe, that this will be the destiny of Jesus also. Jesus comes preaching the same message, confronting sin, calling for repentance, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he understands that his end will be like John's. This is the end of John's public ministry now. He has been arrested and he will go on to be killed. Jesus knows that his end will be exactly the same. Jesus also will be handed over. That same verb occurs throughout the gospel narrative and especially in the passion narrative. Jesus knows that he will be betrayed. And so the twofold movement is explained by this correspondence. He withdraws as an act of wisdom. Jesus had been in the Jordan area. There was a a, a large ministry. John had called people to repentance. They were all going to him for baptism. He's now arrested. So wisdom would dictate that he withdraws from that area, not because he fears being arrested. Jesus is not afraid of God's appointed end for him, of being handed over and killed, but he knows that now is not his time. So he withdraws, and then he goes, indicating that Jesus understands that he now has the baton. John's ministry is over Jesus is now running with this message, with this gospel. Jesus understands that this will be a contentious message to many. In the Sermon on the Mount, just one chapter later, he will say to his disciples, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you. He understands the nature of his ministry. Jesus will go on to teach parables in the face of those who oppose him, knowing that he does not please them with his words. We will read in just a few chapters time that they sought to kill him. Early on in the gospel, in their hearts was to kill this man. Jesus knows that as he calls his disciples, as he gathers around him 12 men, Jesus knows 
as he pours his life into them, as he loves them and teaches them and instructs them, he knows that one of them will betray him. That Jesus will hand him over to be crucified. And with all of that, Jesus moves on with the mission. He knows that his ministry will be one wherein he is betrayed. Now, if you think about what Matthew has been doing so far, there is an irony that arises. Jesus has been presented from chapter 1, verse 1 onwards as a king. Matthew's emphatic declaration, every single chapter has been, behold the king. And now we see that this king will be handed over. What kind of king is this? Another irony is that Matthew presents Jesus as not any earthly king, but as the Messiah, the Savior. He has come to bring you redemption, says Matthew. And with that in mind, if you've been following Matthew's argument, now you see that this so-called Savior will be arrested and handed over to be killed. What kind of salvation is that? But as with so many ironies that we see in the biblical text, if we probe them for long enough, they become the very means by which we see the glory of the gospel. As you probe these ironies of the king being arrested, of the savior being killed, therein you find the gospel. Jesus is a king, but he has come not to set up a military campaign and overthrow the Roman government, but to save sinners, to release those who are in bondage to sin. He is a savior, but he hasn't come so as to save his people from military or political oppression, he has come to reconcile his enemies. That is the nature of the gospel. And so it is exactly in accordance with the wisdom of God that the means by which he would affect this gospel is through the betrayal of one of his disciples. It is just showing us the splendor of God's plan that he would ordain through one of Jesus' disciples, the salvation that he brings would be effected. Not to say that there is any indication in the biblical text of Judas Iscariot have coming to faith in Christ. But that we understand Jesus reconciles his enemies to himself. Enemies like you and enemies like me. The very heart of the gospel can be understood by seeing that Jesus would be betrayed. He brings salvation to his enemies. And from there, Matthew introduces us exactly to what that salvation would look like. This is now the second theme that he introduces us to in this passage, having shown us that Jesus' ministry would be one of betrayal, he then quotes from Isaiah. I trust 
at this stage in our study in Matthew's Gospel, you are not surprised by this. If you've been here since we've started, you'll note that this is one of Matthew's favorite things to do. He's writing initially, first and foremost, for a Jewish audience. Matthew's Gospel is a very very Jewish gospel. And so one of the things Matthew does in order to make his case for Jesus being the Christ and to show us the significance of his ministry, one of the things Matthew does, it would seem on a weekly basis, is to reach back into Old Testament scriptures and show us the fulfillment of Israel's theology. No different this week. Jesus moves to Galilee, and Matthew says, verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes from chapter 9. Now, I hope that you remember each and every time we've looked at a quotation from the Old Testament, I've tried to labor the fact that this is not simply a box-checking exercise. There were prophecies given in the Old Testament. Matthew sees their fulfillment in Christ. He's doing more than saying that box can now be checked. That's only part of what's happening. There is so much more. This is not simply a prophecy about geography, but it is a theology. And so every time Matthew quotes from the Old Testament, what he is doing is grabbing on a context. He's pulling on a theology. And he's, he's pushing that theology into his narrative. And he's saying, I want you to understand the things of Isaiah 9 with reference now to Jesus Christ. And so one thing that we're responsible to do every time we see this fulfillment language is to consider the original prophecy in its original context. So you might just turn back briefly To the book of Isaiah and chapter 9, we've read it already this morning. It would help us just to see the larger context of this prophecy to understand what Matthew is saying when he draws attention to these words finding their fulfillment with Christ. Isaiah chapter 9 sits within a larger literary unit of Isaiah 7 through 9. And you may remember that we've already studied Isaiah 7 within the context of Matthew's gospel. Matthew draws on Isaiah 7.14 when he speaks about the virgin birth. The prophecy given in Isaiah chapter 7 is that there would be a child born of a virgin. And Matthew says it's fulfilled in Christ. What we have when we get to Isaiah chapter 9 is this child, this virgin-born child now grown up. We see the ministry that he brings, and it is a ministry of salvation. It is a robust gospel. What Isaiah gives us in chapter 9 is a robust picture of the salvation that Jesus brings. And we could make many observations about this salvation I'll just give you a few of them from this text. First and foremost, notice it is a salvation that transforms the human heart utterly. Isaiah's words are that they walked in darkness, verse 2. They dwelt in a land of deep darkness. 
He talks about the reality of death. And the light shining is a metaphor for salvation. It is not a self-help program. The salvation that Isaiah prophesies of, that Matthew says is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, is not a salvation that asks you to improve your life with the help of God's power. It is a salvation that clearly depicts you are utterly lost without the grace of the gospel. You are dwelling in darkness. That is a vivid picture for your spiritual depravity. You cannot help yourself because you can't see. And the salvation that Isaiah speaks of is one that shines light. It utterly transforms the human heart. That is the nature of the gospel that Jesus brings. Additionally, notice it is a gospel that goes beyond Israel to the nations. We see Galilee of the nations being referred to in chapter 9, verse 1. In Isaiah's day, Galilee would have been a Gentile rich area, even more so in Jesus' day. It is significant that Jesus moves in order to begin his public ministry to a Gentile rich area. And he will be there. Up until around about chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel, this will be his mission HQ. Because Jesus has a burden to preach the gospel to the nations. And that, if you remember, is a particular accent of Matthew's theology. All the way back in chapter 1 with that extended genealogy, one of the things that Matthew shows us through that is that this gospel is not for the Jewish people alone. And we see it here again in Matthew chapter 4, by way of Isaiah chapter 9. This is a gospel that goes to the Gentiles. It's for this reason that in Matthew's gospel, we finish the very last scene of Matthew's gospel. Is Jesus giving the great commission? Go unto the nations. He is presenting himself as a king for everyone, not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile only. And so the robust gospel we see being preached in Isaiah 9 is a gospel that is for you and for me in a very real way. We sit here this morning, thousands of miles from where Jesus' ministry was originally conducted, the happy recipients of the gospel. Because of these words spoken by Isaiah, and more specifically by their fulfillment through Jesus' ministry. Another observation. We see that the gospel preached in Isaiah 9, fulfilled through Jesus, is a gospel of great joy. Notice verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. That's an understatement. The joy that they experience at the harvest pales compared to the joy that they experience from the light that has been shone into their hearts and so also us. The gospel that Jesus Christ brings is a gospel of great joy. It is not a gospel that is intended to bring about a superficial level of happiness in your life. It is not a gospel that brings about temporary joy. It is a gospel that speaks to the greatest need of the human heart. 
The greatest need you have is to be reconciled to God through the forgiveness of your sin. However you came here this morning, whatever need you perceived in your life this morning, the Bible says your greatest need is to be reconciled to your Creator through the forgiveness of your sin. And the only way in which that can happen is through the faith in Trust in the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And when you express that faith in Him, there is joy that comes as a result. Deep-seated, everlasting joy. And notice that this joy centers on a king. The robust gospel that is preached in Isaiah 9 is fulfilled in Matthew 4, is one that has at its center the virgin-born child of Isaiah 7, who in Isaiah 9 is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's a King of David. He is your King. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Your salvation in the truths of the gospel cannot be interpreted apart from Jesus as your king. If you come here today proclaiming salvation, forgiveness of sins, right standing before God, but you know nothing of Jesus being your king, you don't have a biblical salvation. But in so much as your salvation centers upon trust in, obedience to, worship of this king, then you have received this gospel. Now, the difficulty for us as we consider passages like Isaiah 9, and we could go to so many others in the Bible this morning, that issue forth to us a robust picture of salvation. The difficulty for us is that we are so prone to boil down God's glorious plan of salvation to a mere equation A mere transaction that robs the gospel of its glory. We live in a time where we are conditioned to think of life in terms of transactions. More than ever before, we live in a time where our interactions are no longer based on relationships, but transactions. You swipe right, you double click, you have the thing you need, no personal contact needed. We are a transactionary people, and that starts to inform the way we think of biblical truth. Don't misunderstand me. There is a transaction that occurs in the economy of the gospel. There is a transaction that initiates your relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a transaction where you put your faith in Christ. He pays for your sins. He accepts your sins and gives to you his righteousness. There is transaction. But you don't stop your meditation of the gospel there. Rather, that becomes the entry point, the gateway into a world of glory. A universe of truth that you can ponder and probe for the rest of your days and never exhaust. You can set your heart upon the glory of the gospel and never find its bottom 
and be satisfied by its truth, its life-giving truth each and every day. And it is by pondering those glories that you are found to be a faithful disciple. You understand the dangers of boiling down the gospel to a mere equation of saying, in effect, I prayed to Jesus, I asked him to forgive my sin, I acknowledged my sin, I prayed and he forgave me and I'm good. And I don't really have to do a whole lot more than that. I sometimes show up to church and I sing where I'm there, but that's about the sum title of some total of Jesus's interaction in my life, the danger of doing that is that you ascribe to a gospel that is far from biblical and you walk out a path of discipleship that is by no means biblical. I often think that Christians lack of love for the Lord. Their lack of fervency for the things of the church. Their lack of desire for God's word and for prayer and for fellowship with the saints. is just a result of the fact that they have not really apprehended the gospel. They have not really pursued in their hearts a disciplined meditation upon the glory of the gospel. The shallowness of your gospel will bear fruit in the shallowness of your life as a disciple to Christ. And so if you have not trained yourself to embrace the robust gospel that is given to us in passages like Isaiah chapter 9, do not think that your life will set on display the splendor of Christ, but understand that you are deciding to portray a weak, insignificant Christ to a watching world. That is the decision you make when you refuse to ponder the glory of the gospel. When Matthew shows us here that Jesus is the bringer of salvation, he is doing it in no small way. And this will be a theme that he continues to develop all the way through his narrative. No surprises. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Matthew narrates themes for us that will go on to be predominant in the life of Christ, no surprises, so that you would know what you are ascribing to, who it is you are pledging allegiance to. You can't read the gospel narrative and say, I didn't understand. I wasn't sure who this man was. Matthew up front is showing you the glory of Christ and of his gospel. And he's beckoning you to follow this Christ, not another Christ. He is exhorting you to ponder the reality of salvation that has come to the Gentiles, that is transforming hearts, that brings great joy and centers upon a king. And he's saying, make your life about this gospel. And then see how your feet follow in a glorious obedience. Jesus is the bringer of a glorious salvation. And your responsibility is to probe it and to ponder it and to delight in it and to follow gladly as one of his disciples. That is the second theme that Jesus shows us at the beginning of his ministry, the third And final is that of repentance 
after Matthew has narrated the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, he says, so as to wrap up this unit, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We come full circle here. At the beginning of this text, there was a link inferred between John the Baptist and Jesus. John was his forerunner, not just in time, but in theology. And that means that Jesus also will be handed over, arrested, killed. It also means, verse 17, Jesus will preach the same sermons John preached. He will preach a message of repentance, and notice that it's the way in which Jesus begins his ministry. He begins his ministry in the same way that John did, indicating that you do not have access to this salvation, this glorious gospel. You do not have access to it apart from repentance. Jesus is not okay with your sin. You come to him a sinner. His grace exceeds all and every sin. But as you accept him as a savior, you understand he expects that you would be one turning from your sin. If you remember back to John's ministry when he was being very confrontational with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He pointed them out for having a false repentance. He said to them, your repentance is not bearing fruit, it's false. He said, your repentance isn't now, it's rooted in the past, in history. He said to them, your repentance is not founded on an embracing of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's got as its theological foundation something else. And it's so important for us to remind ourselves of these truths. Jesus does not consider the work of calling people to repentance to be done. He begins his ministry in the same way that John the Baptist did. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he calls people continuously his whole earthly life. Jesus will pass on the baton in a few chapters time to his disciples He will send them out in his name to represent him and do the work of the ministry. And guess what? At that moment, he gives to them this sermon. Jesus hands over his sermon notes and says, this is what I want you to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's so important for us to keep returning to this message because... The human spirit will try to do everything it can to avoid the demand for repentance. The human spirit will try to get to Jesus another way. We all see things we like about Jesus. You speak to an unbeliever, ask them what they they think of this man. I can almost guarantee you they will be affirming of something in Jesus' ministry. The number of times I've asked that question of someone who is not a Christian, tell me what you think about Jesus, and the response has been a positive response. 
He's a good teacher. He did some good things. He taught us how to live. We all see something good we like in Jesus. And so in our spirits, in our flesh, we try to find a way to get to him without taking seriously his demand on our lives to repent of our sin. I was in a conversation just on Friday with a man with whom I was able to establish very quickly a shared perspective on life. He works in government. And I realized that he and I were aligned on just about everything as it relates to politics, public life, policy. I would guess that if we had carried on our conversation for hours, we would have found nothing as it relates to his work and all things pertaining to worldview that we would have disagreed on, in a sense, we were kindred spirits. And as I realized this, I decided at some point in the conversation just to ask him, tell me about your religious affiliation. That was my inoffensive way of getting to a very offensive topic. So tell me about your religious affiliation. And he said, you know, my parents were Anglicans and I don't really do much with that. But he said very quickly, trying to take the conversation back to where we were previously, he said, I do see the value of a religious tradition in society. I see the value, the contribution that a religious tradition makes to society. That's what he said. And I, I responded and said, but that's, that's not the issue. The religious tradition that you're speaking of is not the, the ultimate issue. The tradition points to realities of repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where the contribution is. It's not in tradition, but it's in people turning from their sin and embracing Christ. And he said, almost, almost with a sense of despair, almost acknowledging that he was trapped, he said, I wish I had more than a tradition. I wish I had more than a tradition, he said. If I was to, to paraphrase from a theological perspective, I would say that he was saying, I wish I could repent. I wish I could turn from my sin and embrace Christ. And the struggle, as I think about that conversation, the struggle I have is, is reconciling the the tension that is everywhere in Scripture of God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility. It's everywhere. You see it in this text followed by the next text. Next Sunday, Jesus says, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. They, they follow him. There's God's sovereignty in salvation. Jesus is speaking and affecting heart transformation. 
But the preceding text highlights the responsibility of man to deal with his sin. And so I hear comments like that and I come to texts like this and you you struggle with the tension and what do you do with this? And as a preacher, you find your rest in doing exactly what the text tells you to do. I want to command you this morning with Jesus as my example to repent from your sin. I command you this morning to repent from your sin. Bring to mind what you do that doesn't honor the Lord. Call to mind what it is that offends God. And say that I'm turning from that. By the strength that God gives you, by His grace, that is no longer going to define who I am. I repent, turn away from my sin, and I cast myself upon Jesus, who I find to be a sufficient Savior. As you repent from your sin, the kingdom of heaven becomes yours. The king becomes your king. You take up the mantle of discipleship and you rise each and every day to trust Jesus. To take him at his word, to follow him, to obey him in God's strength by his grace. And you live a life of repentance. And you live a life of obedience and you do it until the day when Jesus appears to call you home. Let's pray to respond. Our Father, we give you thanks for the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We praise you that Jesus came understanding himself in the likeness of John the Baptist. He didn't come merely after him in time, but he came in his likeness theologically, preaching the same message, destined for the same end, to be betrayed, handed over. And in his betrayal, we find the wisdom of the gospel on display, that through the betrayal of one of his disciples, salvation would be affected. It teaches us about the gospel. It is a message of salvation for your enemies, of whom we were the foremost. And we rejoice this morning that we have been reconciled to you through this gospel. We see the salvation that Jesus brings as indicated by this fulfillment of Isaiah 9, a robust message of salvation. Not merely a transaction, but a glorious prophecy given, teaching us about the transformation that comes by way of this message. Renewed hearts, alive to you, to the Gentiles, Great joy, all of it centering upon a king 
There is so much more we could say. Please help us to apprehend more fully the glory of the gospel. That our lives would reflect the command of discipleship. And we see a final theme at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that of repentance. The same theme that John the Baptist came with. Jesus also preaches a sermon commanding people to turn from their sin, to embrace the kingdom, to embrace the king. Father, I pray if there is anyone here who does not know you savingly, they would repent of their sin, embrace Christ as their savior, and the testimony of this church would be one of steadfast obedience to Jesus until that day when he returns to call us home. In his name we pray. Amen.